Hi, this is Sarah Grady. Welcome to another episode of The Estruin Gradient. The Estruin Gradient is a podcast of the North and South Rivers Watershed Association and the Mass Bay's South Shore region. You can get in touch with The Estruin Gradient on Twitter, at Estruin Gradient, or uh, at the NSRWA's Twitter, at NSRWA. Or you can also send me an email at Sarah at nsrwa.org. And uh, I'm always looking for topics and questions, so definitely feel free to get in touch with me. It's springtime, almost summer, and the leaves are out on the trees, flowers are blooming, the herring have been running, the birds are chirping. Everybody knows that these things are going to happen and we all celebrate the onset of spring, but how do we know when these things are going to happen? The study of the timing of when things happen in nature is called phenology. Now, for some reason, that word phenology often escapes me when I'm trying to remember it. I don't know what it is about it. Uh, It could be its resemblance to other great science words like phylogeny. Um, But regardless, phenology is the timing of those natural events. And in recent years, a lot of the focus on phenology has been on shifts due to climate change. I have a special guest today who is an expert in phenology. I'm so glad to be talking today with Dr. Michelle Stodinger. Hi, and welcome to the Esterin Gradient. Um, Can you tell us who you are? All right, I am Dr. Michelle Stoudinger. I'm an ecologist with USGS. I'm the science coordinator for the Northeast Climate Adaptation Science Center, which is located at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where I'm also adjunct faculty in the Department of Environmental Conservation. People always tell me that my title is really long, but I think yours might actually be longer. I yeah, <laughs> have a I wear a couple a few different hats. <laughs> Today, I have you here to talk about something that everyone's minds kind of are drawn to at this time of year in springtime, which is uh, the timing of when all of these springtime things happen. I coordinate volunteer herring counts, and people are always asking me, when are the herring going to arrive? As I'm looking out my window and seeing various flowers blooming, you know, people are always observing when those things happen. So um, I have you here to talk to us about phenology. What is phenology? Well, first of all, this is one of my favorite scientific topics to, to talk about. Um, and you're right, having this conversation in spring is probably, especially in the Northeast U.S., is probably the best time to to think about and talk about phenology because it's so, I think, inherently recognizable. People don't even necessarily think about it, but it is the timing of recurring plant and animal life cycle events. And this includes things like migration, maturation, reproduction, or growth. And as we've been talking about spring, we immediately see phenological events as our songbirds 
return from their overwintering grounds um, and begin to uh, forage and um, raise their young. Or maybe our, our flowers are blooming in our yards and our trees are, are budding and growing leaves. And all of these are phenological events that we can uh, measure the timing of. How are those different parts of a life history being affected at springtime? So really all aspects of an organism's life history can be thought of occurring on a phenological calendar. So this can be everything from um, the egg or the most early life history phase uh, that an organism has, um, whether it's a seed, juvenile or early phenophases, um, which is sort of like that life phase that, that we refer to in, in science speak, all the way up through um, different uh, juvenile and, and adult phases um, where an organism is, is maturing um, and getting ready to reproduce. I mentioned a couple of quick examples at, at the beginning, um, but what, what are some of your favorite Northeast uh, organisms uh, whose phenology we regularly observe? Well, for my backyard species, um, Phoebes are one of my favorites because I have a, a, a pair or two of pretty reliable Phoebes that build their nest right under my deck and right outside my office window. I think another favorite backyard species are tulips and crocuses, which are sort of our, and daffodils, of course, which are our first signs of spring poking up sometimes even through the snow um, to let us know that spring has arrived. Um, but some other favorites of mine, um, more in, in the coastal and marine realm, are, are anadromous fishes like river herring, which are returning from overwintering and, and their adult phases in the open ocean and returning back through our coastal rivers to, to spawn in, in our coastal ponds. But another great example um, are North Atlantic right whales, which come to Cape Cod Bay uh, to forage um, as one of their locations along their migra migratory routes as they're heading north uh, to places like the Bay of Fundy. And so they're in our area for a short window of time. And I think we're very lucky to have the opportunity to see those highly endangered species right off our shores at this time of year. I know that I've tracked when the herring have arrived in a couple of different streams on the South Shore for over a decade. And it's really variable with each year, depending on temperature and depending on rainfall. How many years does it take to start to detect if there were going to be some sort of shift due to something like climate change? It takes quite a number of years, actually. I think ideally we would have a minimum of, of two decades, 20 years, but even more than that, multiple decades is, is really the best way to track those long-term changes and shifts in phenology. Um, and the other really important component of tracking phenology is you need to make those timing measurements in a relatively narrow spatial area so that you have that consistent location associated with that timing measure. So I'd say at least 20 years and also that timeline should be in a, in a very consistent location, like as you are, are saying, at a particular stream. Why does climate change affect phenology? 
Well, temperature is considered sort of the master variable or master climate driver of, of most um, organisms' physiology, um, phenology, a variety of, of different uh, ecological traits or biological traits that are uh, associated with the particular species. So temperature is that, that trigger for when uh, many organisms migrate um, from one place to another. Um, it might cross a thermal threshold for them to initiate some sort of growth period. And with climate change, we know that uh, our world is warming. It's also affecting the timing of seasons. So our seasonal transitions, um, particularly in spring, are happening earlier, which is increasing the growing season. And so we're seeing a lengthening of spring and summer um, as these temperatures are rising um, within these seasonal periods, but also across years and decades. And so that's essentially facilitating these life cycle events often earlier than they have been his historically. So what kinds of changes have we already seen like here in New England, Massachusetts, this area? Well, we have seen the earlier start of spring, both on land and in the oceans. Um, so that's when we've crossed this temperature or thermal threshold, which we refer to as you know the start of the growing season or um, the start of spring or the initiation of spring or summer. So that has typically arrived, uh, that, that timing of that thermal period has arrived earlier. And that has led um, particularly to really strong evidence of earlier plant and tree blooming and leaf out across New England, as well as across the nation. Um, we've seen earlier timing of many of our migratory songbirds. And in some places, we've seen earlier migration of, of fishes as well. Although tracking phenology in water and aquatic environments is, is much trickier than on land. Um, that's largely because we can just walk outside our backyards and see a, a a tree which doesn't move very much <laughs> at all, or our flowers blooming, and we can record that that timing in that place really consistently and reliably year after year. But it's much harder to observe and track organisms that live underwater. So it makes getting that timing of tracking, for example, our, our migratory fishes like river herring much more difficult. I imagine that temperature shifts are a bit less dramatic because of that thermal capacity of the water as well. And we have had some days where the temperatures have been up, you know, in the upper 70s, maybe even hitting 80, you know, and then we'll have two days later, the temperature might be in the 40s or the 50s. Um, and the ocean temperatures just don't swing, or the ocean and river temperatures just don't swing that wildly. Yeah, there's, there's a couple things to note there. The first is that what we would call a lag effect between the air and the water. As you say, it takes a little longer for the water to warm up to meet the same temperatures that the air has already reached. So there's often, we have to create models to understand what that lag effect is between the air temperature and the water temperature. And that's gonna vary also between our streams and rivers, as well as our ponds and coastal areas. The other thing is that we've got a lot of um, information to track air temperatures. We've got a lot of weather stations. This is something that we do really well. But we have fewer stations that are tracking water temperatures 
um, especially in those different at those different scales that I just mentioned, the pond, the stream, the river, the coast, the open ocean, we have much fewer data points that are collecting that information that allow us to understand how water temperatures are changing relative to the air temperatures. So things are changing and maybe we're having earlier spring and longer growing seasons and things like that. And initially, you know, some people might think, well, that sounds wonderful. I love springtime. I love warm weather. But what is the ecological issue with these shifts occurring? Well, there's there's a couple things to mention here. The first is, yeah, everybody loves a warmer season. Having earlier springs, longer summers is is really great for humans. But for organisms that rely on the colder seasons for completing certain portions of their life history, shorter winters and the later ending of fall is not always a good thing. There are certain zooplankton species that require that cold winter temperature for um, a resting period and And that's a really important time period for them to build up lipids and other nutritional aspects of their biology. They serve as the base of the food chain to many other organisms like our river herring, but also to our our large whales and a lot of other species that live in the oceans. This is also true of terrestrial species. There are certain forest trees that require chilling or or, um, plants that require chilling to then initiate that next part of their their life history or, or phenophases. And so what this can eventually lead to is a mismatch in between predator and prey or resources that different organisms rely on. And we call this trophic or phenological mismatch. And and that's the ultimate concern about shifts or changes in phenology is that those organisms that were linked up or had to complete certain aspects of their life history are either becoming out of sync or mismatched, or they're not completing those life history events in such a way that it benefits the other species in the community or the ecosystem that they're interacting with that have benefited them historically in terms of nutrition, or maybe in terms of forming adequate habitat, suitable habitat. Can you give an example of one of these trophic cascades that gets disconnected? A really classic example is a mismatch in the timing of our flowering plants and the arrival of pollinators. So that can be a really big deal, especially in agricultural systems where we might rely on pollinators to pollinate certain flowering plants and or providing food for those pollinators. And maybe the plants in those pollinators aren't occurring in the the same place at the same time as needed to either become pollinated or pollinate and forage. I've heard that one of the issues, just thinking about river herring, is that they would arrive before their food was available in the fresh water, that it would be prior to the the phytoplankton blooms um, in the freshwater ponds. Yeah, so that's a classic example in the scientific literature around fisheries in terms of Cushing's larval mismatch theory. So this can occur in our freshwater ponds, it can occur in the ocean, but it's that timing um, of those primary and secondary production. If, for example, young larval fish are, are hatching and looking for their first food, and either the zooplankton uh, peak has 
already passed or is delayed into the future, then you can have a, a very poor year class success if those larval fish aren't matched or aligned in timing um, with their food resources. And you mentioned that temperature is really the, the dominant driver for a lot of this, but thinking about other impacts of climate change, what about the timing of precipitation events? Yeah, precipitation is a lot more variable in terms of how we're seeing it respond to climate impacts and compared to, to temperature. Um, but yeah, changes in precipitation can manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, again, going back to winter um, and that cold period, uh, the amount of precipitation that is falling during winter is increasingly falling in the form of a liquid, so rain instead of snow, which means that we're having um, less snowpack um, and build up over that winter period, which can also result in less but earlier um, melting, which can change the hydrology and flow in our, our streams and rivers, which may also serve as a cue for migrating fish from the ocean inland. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you want to think about during the summertime, the frequency and, um, and amount of precipitation that falls during the summer um, can really um, affect how much water is in our streams and rivers. And so one of the impacts that we're seeing from climate change is that we're seeing an increase in the frequency of short-term droughts, but also in heavier precipitation events. So that sounds a little counterintuitive that we're having more drought, but more heavy precipitation. And so what is really happening there is you have more periods where there's dryness, but then when we do have precipitation, it's it's really intense, it's really extreme. And so that can lead to all sorts of wonky things going on with our with our hydro hydrological cycles. Um, we may have some of our smaller streams have lower flows, which can affect the ability of migratory fish to um, pass through those systems. But then when you have those really heavy precipitation events, that can lead to a lot of runoff from the land into those systems, which can create really turbid and, and poor water quality um, conditions for those fish, which might delay um, or prevent their migration. And in many times, at least with our um, anadromous fishes, our river herring, that could really affect the ability of our young juveniles to out-migrate into the ocean um, and reach the coast before before temperatures decrease and, and, uh, and winter onset. Yeah, we've seen that in multiple years in our herring runs where our issue is not necessarily getting fish into the system. The issue is getting juvenile fish out in the late summer and the early fall. This year, it looks like we may still be heading into drought based on some of the local stream gauges. Another complicating factor to all of this is that so many of our streams and, and rivers have barriers to movement. So that also really complicates passage um, in both directions, but especially when we have really droughty summers that can that can really lead to issues of outmigration of those um, those juvenile fishes. So what can people do to try to help scientists track? phenology. You mentioned it's pretty easy to walk out your front or back door and make phenological observations. So if someone wanted to do that, how could they go about doing that? 
Well, there's a number of citizen science networks that are really valuable to collecting phenological data. Um, the National Phenology Network has whole campaigns that are devoted to collecting phenological information of a variety of, of plants and animals. Um, I have really valued the Massachusetts River Herring Network um, as a source of data. I mean, scientists um, would love to collect data everywhere all the time, <laughs> but we don't often have the resources to do that. So those citizen science programs like the River Herring Network are just really important to sort of adding capacity to collect those data and get that information to make available for these long-term analyses. I mentioned earlier that we need, you know, ideally a minimum of 20 years of data to track how changes um, are occurring in a given system. So going out and um, connecting with these different groups that are collecting this information and, and having that data feed into a local, regional, or national repository of data that's standardized um, so that we can do those analyses is, is really a great way to contribute to science and help us understand the effects of climate change, whether it be with flowers or trees or fish. I participated or I still participate in a project observing lilacs. Yeah, that's a great example. The lilacs are one of those data sets that I think are probably our, our strongest example of a, a, a citizen science and long-term data set um, of phenology, all of these data points are, are creating this like web or network across large areas that help us understand that local variation and timing. Climate impacts are not uniform across the Northeast or the nation. And so understanding that local variation is, is a really important way to understand the nuances of, of climate impacts and its effect on different organisms. So yeah, that's a great example of, of, a, of a terrestrial example. And again, I'll go back to the Massachusetts River Herring Network, which does this monitoring in many, many streams along the coast. And so we've been able to take those data sets and analyze them to better understand like how much variation there is among systems, among all the different coastal streams, um, ranging from south of Cape Cod all the way up to the North Shore and see you know, how much variation is there in the timing of uh, those river herring migrations into those different pond systems. And the other thing to note there is that population size is a really important factor in understanding phenology as well. You can have a lot more variation when you have a bigger population or a larger system with many more fish versus a, a system that's maybe smaller with fewer fish. So we take that into account in our analyses as well. So it's not just the timing, but it's the number of, of fish that are passing in these different systems that's really important. Well, thank you for uh, putting in such a good plug for the River Herring Network because <laughs> we're, we're pretty proud of, uh, of what we've managed to put together. So. Well, I think I think it's a great program. And I mean, we published two papers um, using that data to better understand how phenology was was changing uh, across Massachusetts. And I, I think it served as a really great example for other states um, like Maine is now looking to, to do more of the citizen science and uh, monitoring and uh, particularly around river herring. But yeah, I think Massachusetts is largely unique, both with their river herring wardens as well as their tree wardens. It's a really interesting and, and cool program that, that our state has. 
Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I think it's it's so fascinating. And there are places where the herring are still running. So um, you know, go go visit the herring. Go out. I know my lilacs are blooming. So go smell some lilacs and enjoy the rest of your spring. Thanks. This was super fun. Thank you so much to Dr. Michelle Stoninger for joining me today. Now get out there and enjoy that spring and summer weather and keep an eye out for the changes that you might be seeing. This has been the Estruin Gradient. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can get in touch with me through Twitter at Estuarine Grady or through the NSRWA's Twitter at NSRWA. Or you can send me an email at sarah at nsrwa.org.